Every industry is under pressure to innovate, to compete, or even survive. But a lot of companies just aren't prepared for the disruption, for the challenges, and for the legal risks associated with technology. In this series, we want to find out how companies can build a resilient tech strategy. And we're going to be looking into some data you may find surprising. Today's episode is all about making sure your tech launch goes to plan and what can happen if it doesn't. Right now, companies are using technology to solve some of our biggest challenges, whether it's carbon capture or medical technology. These are the kinds of innovations we're all counting on. But at the same time, we know technology isn't perfect. And from a simple malfunction to a complex hack, even a small failure can lead to big consequences. So what if you're one of those companies operating at the cutting edge of technology? How do you plan for everything to go right when you're launching a new product? And how can you possibly plan for what to do if something goes wrong? Especially if you don't know what that might be yet. And what about the reputational risk to your company of technology failure, even if it's something that's totally out of your control? Last year, a lot of websites went dark for a while, everyone from CNN to Amazon, then even the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, all because of an outage at a smaller network. My point is that it can happen to anyone, and it's risky. So if you have a customer-facing technology that's integral to your brand, you're likely going to need to both plan ahead and have a crisis management playbook, a step-by-step -step guide on what to do when systems go down. What's really surprising is that a lot of companies are not prepared for what launching new technology requires of them and for what technology failure might mean for them. So what do they need to know? I'm joined by Valerie Kenyon and Lillian Hardy, both partners at Hogan Levels and both technology experts. Valerie, who has a particular focus on technology disputes and the launch of new products onto the global market, joins us from the UK. Lillian is based in the US and is one of the leaders within Hogan Levels' crisis management teams. Valerie, Lillian, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, and thank you very much for having us. Looking forward to our discussion. Hi there. Thank you for having us. So, Valerie, there's a constant cycle of new technology hitting the market. If you're a company that's on the verge of breaking through with an amazing new product, what sort of things do you need to be thinking about? Where to start? And uh, not exactly a small question. Well, there's so much for a product company to be thinking about. And the first item I'll pick up is a big assumption. And I'm going to assume that said company has dealt with all of their IP protections and they have that all in place because that's the first thing I'd be thinking about with my great innovation. Next, it's really important to be thinking about really early the answer to two questions. One, who is my market? And two, where is my market? And a product counseling team needs to keep coming back to these questions. Trust me, you're going to thank them for it later. So if the who in this situation was to include selling to consumers, then there's a whole host of legislation that the product company is going to need to consider before they can put their product on the market, no matter how technological, no matter how simple. For example, your who includes that you were developing, say, wearable tech product for use by children, then you're going to need to make the design, the packaging, the inbox material really quite different to if you're designing it for an adult. Let's now talk about the where. Where is your market? And that's one of the key questions that needs to be raised at a really early point. 
So on this, laws are developing pretty quickly, sometimes in a divergent manner, and regulatory and enforcement attitudes can really vary between markets. So I have to say every company comes to our team and says they want to start with a single globally compliant product, packaging and inbox materials. And very quickly, we start getting into the weeds of exactly which markets they want to launch into and when, because it's so much more cost effective for a company to be thinking about the largest number of potential jurisdictions when they're starting to make a product ready for market, rather than try to expand out their markets later. And that's because you really want to work out the parallels as across all of your markets as quickly as possible. And I can say from experience, it really is no fun telling a company that the product they've just launched that was entirely appropriate for, say, their first six markets simply won't be viable in the next seven. So these are really pragmatic and commercial points. But it's also really important for a company on the cusp of tech brilliance to think about whether the market and the regulators are ready for the innovation. So how can companies avoid some of this risk? So with innovative products, it might even require the engagement with regulators at an early stage to get them on board to explain who the user is, what the use case is, and what the regulator should be thinking about the product right at the outset. And this is something that I've often been involved with. So I've often attended really interesting meetings with the regulators, with the product company, with the marketing team to talk enthusiastically about this fantastic technology and what it's going to mean for the customer base and how it comes onto the market in a very different way and to give opportunities to the regulator to ask questions. So, of course, the company has to think carefully about whether to do that, how to do that. But that's certainly an approach that can be taken. At an early stage, if I was launching an innovative product, I'd also be thinking about, with all the excitement and promise that the product has, whether it's something quite simply that your supply chain can cope with. We've had some really noticeable examples in recent years of fantastic products and services simply being hampered by supply chain issues. We've seen Oatly, for example, become really fantastic. Marketing campaign is brilliant. It's really penetrated into the kitchens and homes of coffee shops and individuals looking for a great hit that's different to their usual coffee. But it's been a real struggle for Oatly to keep up with demand. And then, of course, supply chain issues with silicon chips is pretty clear. It's disrupted a lot of markets um, in lots of really interesting ways. Before launching new tech, overall, I would say it's really important to have a very strong understanding of the regulatory landscape, the legislation that applies, and also what's coming up on the horizon. You're going to need to be working with a really strong product counselling team. You need them on side and you need them to be able to draw on expertise relating to all areas of the laws that apply to the innovative product. You don't need them only to focus on product laws. That's just not going to be enough. Sounds like it's a lot of things that people don't necessarily want to have to think about, but wish they did only after the fact. When it comes to your company launching, let's say, a new product, how do you stay within the rules or the laws when there are no laws because you've just invented this new product, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the key question that a company has to think about is, how can I be confident this product is safe? And how can I persuade my consumers, my end users, this product is safe? And if it came to it, how would I persuade the regulators? And that's really difficult. And in many jurisdictions, there's lots of legislation, there's lots of technical standards, and a a company can use that 
to work out whether their product is safe or whether there is a unacceptable risk that's become a dangerous product. So, for example, a tech company might do a mix and match. They might take their technology. They might look at different technical standards that apply to different types of products and work out how parts of those standards could be applied to their product. They might need to work really closely with test houses and test regimes to develop their own standards. There might be the opportunity to develop industry standards. But really, this isn't a new approach because, generally speaking, it's often the case in legislation that the objective, the end result is described, but it's left to technical standards which are often voluntary in the EU or create presumptions of conformity to set out how to meet those requirements and how to achieve that result. But usually that technical standard isn't the only way to meet a legal requirement. So actually what I find is that product companies are very well versed in understanding that they need to get creative in this sphere. But there are some really clear examples of innovative products that just haven't got it right. One that comes to mind for me is in relation to hoverboards. And when I say hoverboard, I'm not quite thinking back to the future. We didn't quite get to that point. But I'm talking about the sort of skateboard on wheels um, with a lithium-ion battery, um, typically in some flashing lights. And nowadays, they also come playing music. And these, these hoverboards were supposed to sort of zip along the pavements. And they came out quite a few years ago, originally. And there were loads of difficulties with them. One difficulty initially was that in many jurisdictions, they couldn't be legally used on pavements or roads. So where were you supposed to use them? And marketing campaigns showing them as a great way to commute to school um, didn't quite work out. Um, but there were also really big gaps in terms of compliance and standards that you should apply to a hoverboard. And there were lots of incidences of a lack of control over the supply chain. And we had big issues with lithium batteries catching fire. We had big issues with the supply chain and sellers not really, frankly, taking too much care as to where these products were coming from, whether they were safe, whether they met required standards. And if they didn't meet required standards, then it was more of a presumption of conformity situation. Was there any evidence that showed that these products um, did in fact meet the legal requirements in order to be safe. And it's taken this amount of time for the market to have confidence and for the reputable products that were already always available to become successful again because the market has recovered and customers have recovered and regulators too um, have trust in these products after what was, um, frankly, a somewhat dodgy start. And, you know, as you've heard, when, when things go wrong, it can go wrong really quickly and it can lead to product safety crises. It can lead to corrective action, enforcement actions, civil claims, really tough questions by regulators. And um, for technology that fails in the product space, if somebody's um, injured or there's a lack of safety, it can even lead to personal criminal liability in some jurisdictions for the individuals involved. Seems like there's a lot to consider that probably most people don't fully understand when thinking about the launch, right? That it, it, they only scratch the surface. Uh, Lillian, I'm I'm curious. Looking outside of the product landscape, let's say a company experiences a different type of technology issue, like a loss of service, which we've seen happen a lot recently. So you're an expert in crisis management. Can you talk us through the risks? I think that we need to look at crisis management as a continuum. So that means that at the beginning of the continuum, you have an opportunity like Valerie does in her practice to be highly strategic, to think about the issues in advance and how to avoid drama. 
Where I live on the continuum, though, is when there has already been an issue and where the stakes are pretty high and the public is already watching. And so in that setting, you raise the idea of an outage or something like that. Uh, The innovators and the engineers who have set all of this up are sort of on the sidelines right now. And at that point, you have the crisis managers and those in legal who have to pick up the pieces and figure out how to move on. There are traditionally sort of three stakeholder groups and issues that need to be addressed directly following an outage or a technology failure. The first are the people issues. And so those are who is responsible for uh, the problem, technological or operational, that led to the outage. The next is the issue related to the public and sort of what people think as a consumer and as a member of the public about what occurred. And then finally, you have customers and people with whom you have a B2B relationship who may be impacted by the lack of access to the technology product. And each one of those groups uh, have different concerns, but they all have to be addressed simultaneously. So it really goes back to a lot of what uh, Valerie was talking about in the planning and the things that you think about and that you strategize about in, in advance. But in real time, when something can go viral in under 11 minutes, and it just takes seconds for everybody to figure out that there's a real problem. In the U.S. context, one of the biggest outages in the recent past, and it's actually not so recent at this point, that people generally think about when you think about a big outage was uh, at the launch of Obamacare, where literally every citizen in America had the opportunity to go on and register for the first time on the health exchange. And there was a lot of fanfare, there was politics, and there were uh, sort of um, proponents and detractors on all sides. But the problem occurred when everyone went to the system and it just flat out didn't work. And it didn't work for hours and hours. And at that point, it became an issue of not only the technological failure, but it morphed into something that people could view as a political failure as well. And so looking back in the rearview mirror on an incident like that, there are a lot of lessons to be learned and similar things happen in the commercial space uh, and for companies There is a small window in which you can gather the confidence and reestablish your standing with a customer, with the public, and when you can really sort of reset after something like this. Um, And so there are a lot of different considerations that need to be taken. The first is how you communicate with people and how you describe the outage or the event. Not all splash screens are created equal, so you can't just put a splash screen on the front of your website that says, sorry, we're down, go fly off a cliff, we'll see you later. There are literally ways to communicate uh, with people about service interruption that can set the stage. The other thing is figuring out uh, sort of the technological um, gaps that have been created or that have been encountered and to determine if they're sort of a close cousin to other issues like uh, cyber incidents or other manipulation that could be de- being occurring due to an internal threat and making sure that you understand the outage for exactly what it is so that you make sure that it's not just a technological failure that you're confronting and there may not be other issues to address. So I think it's incredibly important to do everything that Valerie said to do in terms of evaluating the risks that could be coming down the pipe 
when you are planning and in the beginning, but once you're in the moment, uh, you've got to act quickly and decisively. Two thoughts that came to mind in the world that I'm in, in terms of product safety and product crises. Number one is, um, this is also a great opportunity for the company to communicate with its customer base. And it seems to me that this is also an opportunity where considerable care needs to be taken into the messaging and style of messaging, because there's the opportunity to be authentic, transparent. It's really important to avoid spin. Um, but, you know, real care needs to be taken with the messaging at every point in any crisis. And secondly, um, in relation to any crisis, and it's certainly the case with respect to a product safety crisis, it's just so important to make sure you've got the right people in the room when decisions are made. So you pointed out, Lillian, really uh, how quickly something can turn into a crisis. And um, very quickly, a company needs to decide who needs to be in the room. Is it is it the engineering team? Is it the marketing team, the sales team? It's not always the most senior people um, that should take control of the incident. The investigation stage needs to happen almost immediately. And for that reason, I think it's always good to have an incident response team that's put together in advance uh, so that people understand which uh, roles they play in the, in the process and which sort of decisions they own. Because trying to figure that piece out within you know, 10 or 11 minutes is going to be just impossible it's going to increase frustration and potentially missteps in responding. So putting together, a, some people try to call it a SWAT team or an incident response team, whatever, whatever you call it, you've got to have it set up in advance. And it's critically important, as Valerie mentioned, that it be cross-functional because there are considerations that a legal team might not make, that a communications team will make. Uh, which may be different than an operational team, and they all matter in those moments. And, and, and so doing things like um, doing tabletop exercises and drills are really important because you want to understand how you're going to respond, and it's impossible to do that without having tested those muscles and, and trained them in advance. Yeah, absolutely. And it seems like that's something you need to be thinking about on the reactive side, but, you know, ideally, Lillian, you're thinking about it even beforehand. So one suggestion I hear from time to time is for companies to have a specific committee that focuses on the issue just of technology risk. Is that the right approach? Absolutely. I mean, it's a matter of governance. Um, A lot of companies have resource allocations specific to technology crisis, to cyber crisis and, and the like. And so it's important that there is a committee whose job it is on an ongoing basis to understand what these risks are, to do things like interview engineers about new products um, and to understand how they work and how um, they're describing them to the consuming public and and so forth. So I do think putting together um, these committees in advance has sort of a commercial benefit because it makes everyone more well-tooled to sell and and market a product, but it also sort of puts everyone in position to understand uh, the risks and how you respond to them in real time. And so it's really important to allocate resources to that in advance and not just when the, the train is off the track. Before we end this discussion, can I get your final thoughts? I'll start by saying this. I think it's really important to be comfortable in making decisions during crisis. Because the number one sort of way to get stuck is to not make any decision. 
And when you make no decision, you're never going to be able to move on. And so it's very difficult, especially when it comes to things that are often outside of our control, such as whether or not a computer or an element of a process is going to work. We then decide to shut ourselves down as humans and say that we also can't work and we can't make decisions, but we have to be able to do that. Um, And decisions may not always be right, but if they are principled, if they're based on facts, if they're based on the preparation that Valerie discussed and that I discussed throughout this conversation, then they will likely be reasonable and sound. Uh, So that's my one tip um, to those people who find themselves in a product or technology crisis be willing to, to make a decision. And I think I would add two items to that. Um, the first is the concept, the concept of the global village. And any technology being launched, whether it's a product or a service, it's being launched in the global village. And by that, I mean, it's being launched you know, globally, but we have tribes of users that might be using your technology, your product in a different way. And so we shouldn't assume that the experience is the same across the board. But at the same time, all of those users are connected. All of those regulators are connected. Your market is connected. And so that means that you know you really need to think very carefully before launching technology or a product that has different features or different standards in one jurisdiction compared to another. Any different approach you want to be able to justify. And so it will be justifiable and appropriate to take a different stance in some jurisdictions when you're launching a product. But you just need to be mindful that those decisions are very likely to come to light. And they could come to light because of social media and consumers are comparing their great unboxing and they are realizing they have a slightly different experience to other consumers in other markets. Or it could come to light because there's a product safety question, concern, even maybe a product safety crisis, and regulators start to ask questions. And regulators, they speak and they are well connected. So that's my first thought, that we need to remember that this technology is being launched in the global village and think about all the consequences as a result of that. And secondly, I would just absolutely reinforce what Lillian said in relation to the need to make decisions, but also the need to document the way that you made those decisions. So throughout the lifetime of a product, you're going to be making decisions from the moment you draw the idea on a page through to the moment the product is launched in a market. And there's going to be a whole catalog of decisions that have to be made at each stage. Risks and balances and um, the more material that goes in the box, the heavier the product is. Is it better for your user to review their material about safety and warnings online? How do you balance that? Um, as against requirements for information to be easily accessible, et cetera, et cetera. There's lots of decision-making going on. And this is before any sort of product crisis comes up. So you need to document those decisions so that you can stand by them, whether whether you need to refer to them later or if you're questioned by a regulator, or if, in fact, you have a product safety issue that you need to come back to and understand why the decisions have been made the way they have. Thank you both for joining us today. For more information on the issues we've discussed, including information about the litigation landscape report, head to the website hoganlevels.com. You can also get in touch with Valerie, Lillian, or your Hogan Levels contact.